If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to kind of zoom in this morning on verses 15 to 29. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 973. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you if you are familiar with an expression. And the expression, I guess, technically has two versions. Either put on your big boy pants or put on your big girl pants, okay? How many are familiar with either one of those? And I've already got three-quarters of the congregation asleep. Good. So this is working well. It's time change Sunday. You're all supposed to be refreshed, and I've already put you to sleep. So I'm off to a good start. Thank you, Mark, for being awake. Bald men are, are good. The reason I ask you if you know that expression is because that expression came to mind this week as I was preparing for this morning. Uh, as I was getting started on Monday and I was working on it, and I'm like, you know what, I think I'm understanding sort of, the, sort of what Paul seems to want to communicate, but as I was doing that, it's like I couldn't see a structure to what I was supposed to say. And that, that's not an uncommon thing, and so I did what I normally do when I'm not seeing any structure or anything, and I, I, I look and I, I read some sermons of other people, seeing if that helps get me some structure, and really what that led me to believe was they were as confused as I was how to communicate it, and so that didn't really help me at that point. And then I was looking at some other resources that I had on Galatians, and I, I found an article by a prominent theologian, and I thought, well, this is going to help me, because prominent theologians can answer all questions. Well, this is the direct quote from the first sentence of the article. There's a lot of good teaching in this text but it's hard to communicate to people. If you want to leave now, I understand. Because I realize I'm reading that going, okay, I'm going to put on my big boy pants because this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be straightforward and simple. And just so you know, the rest of the article didn't help at all. It just made the point, it's hard to communicate. So I'm at that point going, how do we do this? Now, Part of it is I don't want you in any way to feel sorry for me because I think not only do I need to put my big boy pants on, I'll be honest, I think you need to put your big pants on too. Because some of what Paul wants to cover is not necessarily going to be something that you will quickly go, oh, I see how that connects to what I got to do tomorrow morning. It's not one of those things. In some ways, what Paul's going to cover, what we got to look at today is, is kind of technical. You could almost say geeky. And, and for some of us, that's like, oh, we salivate over that. But for most of us, it's like, get me out of here. And yet at the same time, folks, if you and I will walk through this, if we'll get sort of see why Paul's trying to draw this out and make it so precise, it is because these things truly can, I believe, intersect our lives in a way that is much more profound than we realize on the surface. So I recognize this isn't going to be the easiest time. But if you hang in there, I think what we get to is really going to matter. It's really going to mark our lives. So really what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at three big chunks, okay, in essence, because Paul kind of lays out three big chunks. And, and really to, to kind of get started, the, the first chunk is kind of what I would call the, the big picture. And really the, the context of the big picture is, is kind of this. You could say on one hand, Paul has been trying to make it so clear that what really matters in terms of being justified before God, in terms of being in a relationship with God, is you trust in Christ alone. 
by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how you get reconciled to God. But on the other side of the equation, what Paul's been sort of battling, the false teachers, what they've been promoting sort of in the churches in Galatia and the people sort of between Paul on the one hand and the false teachers on the other hand, all both of them are saying, time out, Paul. Um, We know we don't know everything, but we read the Bible. And what they mean when they would say we read the Bible is the Old Testament. That's all they had. But when they read the Old Testament, it's like, Paul, the law is in the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to subdivide the Old Testament, law is sort of one of the three major categories. So how can you say that the law doesn't matter? And in essence, they're saying, Paul, how do you connect this faith alone thing? And you're saying, that's all that matters, and, but we kind of see the law. And we don't understand. And Paul says, hey, let me explain to you the big picture. Let me lay out for you how faith And promise, because he's going to use the word promise a lot, and law, all of that fits together into God's plan, into God's big picture. Okay, so that's really what he wants to do in the first chunk. So to get us started, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 with me. Okay, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, what Paul's really trying to do is he's saying, hey, let me use an analogy at this point. And he's going to do that a couple more times in Galatians 4. Paul, it's one of the only books where he really gets into analogies. But he says, let me use an analogy. And by analogy and by man-made covenant there, what I, you should probably think about, this would be your last will and testament. Okay? So you're writing your will, what you want to have happen when you die. That's kind of what he's saying. And really what he's saying is you write your will, you lay out your wishes, and then you die. I know, really upbeat thought this morning, but the reality is everybody in this room is probably going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, then I would say, you're all going to die. I am not an attorney, but maybe think about putting a will together as a free aside just for fun. Okay? But when you die, your will is ratified. It cannot be changed. It's kind of locked in. Okay? And that's what Paul's saying. There's this there's this principle when you make a covenant and then it's ratified, it's kind of locked in. That's just the way it is. That's sort of the principle he's got in mind. He's using that analogy to set up. And then verse 16 and 17, he says, hey, let's, let's run with that a little bit. Let's go there with this. So verses 16 and 17. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul says, let me apply the principle I was bringing up, my analogy. And to do that, he says, hey, I want you to back up with me to to Genesis chapter 12. I want you to to back up to when God made those promises to Abraham. Now, in doing that, though, Paul says, hey, I want to make a point. In one sense, it's a little bit of an aside. At this point in the book of Galatians, it's not an aside in our lives, but he said, hey, those promises weren't just made to Abraham. They were made to Abraham, but they're also made to his offspring. Very specifically, they're made to the Lord Jesus. So there's something about these promises that are very much dependent upon Abraham and very much dependent upon Jesus. Okay, it is a little bit of an aside 
to what he's going to go for. But really, at this point, we need to understand that this idea of faith alone in Christ alone is literally tied to the promise that God made to Abraham, and he made to Jesus. Okay, and he said that a long, long, long time ago. Now, Paul's point at this point isn't necessarily all of that. He does try to draw that out, but his point is, you go to verse 17 and kind of get the idea he wants to make a point. I mean this. What does he mean? Well, what he means, what he wants to communicate at this point is, hey, don't you understand that faith alone in Christ alone, that's the primary thing. This law thing came later. Now, what's interesting is that 430 years afterwards, that's not the distance from Abraham to Moses. That's the distance from Jacob to Moses. See, God made the promise to Abraham, and he reiterated, repeated it to Abraham's son Isaac, and then it was repeated to Isaac's son Jacob. Then they go into Egypt. They leave the promised land. They're in Egypt. Moses is the one that's going to bring them out of Egypt, and then the law comes into place. But God's saying, hey, don't you realize the covenant? It was ratified. It was set in stone. You don't change the promise. See, the big picture is that faith alone and Christ alone kind of trumps everything. The law was added. Yes, Paul's not arguing that the law doesn't have some purpose or some value, but he's saying, get the big picture. The big picture is it's by faith alone and Christ alone. That's it. That's how this works. If you want to be in a relationship with God, there's one way. It's not through this law that was added later. It's through this promise that God made and was ratified. Now, we're not 100% sure when he says it's ratified all what he means. Okay, there was an event in Genesis 15 that we looked at when we did the series in Abraham in the spring. Is he referring to that? Is he referring to Abraham's death? We're not sure, but he's saying it's ratified. It's locked in. Then in verse 18, he wants to kind of make it clear kind of going back to the idea of the will. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. Okay? I mean, if the law could accomplish it, then this will thing, that's not an issue. But Paul underlines, hey, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This whole big picture is by promise. It's by a promise God made, and that's what it should be. The whole big picture of the Bible, folks, is simply this. If God wants us to be in a relationship with Him, and the only way we can be in a relationship with Him is through the promise that God made to Abraham and to Jesus that it's by faith alone in Christ alone. I pray that one of the things that is true throughout the ministry of Central until Central no longer exists is that we always make it clear that God is inviting you and me into a relationship with Him. And the only way to get that relationship is to trust in the Lord Jesus. Okay? That's the big picture. That's what Paul wants to say. That's his big argument. But the challenge is, what do you do with this thing that was added 430 years later? And again, you read the Old Testament, and there's a lot on the law. I mean, a big chunk of the book of Exodus is the law. 
A big chunk of the book of Leviticus is the law. A big chunk of Numbers still has the law in it. And in case you're wondering, do you know what Deuteronomy means? Second law. Law the second time. So it's kind of like, if you didn't get it the first time, let's have it again. So law is an issue. So how does this work? How does this faith promise thing fit in with the law? Because Paul, you're saying the law doesn't matter. And Paul said, I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. But I'm saying you need to understand that the big picture is a puzzle. And I've given you the puzzle. You kind of have the outline. And now you've got a couple of pieces left. How do those pieces that are law pieces fit into the puzzle? So Paul says, let me tell you, chunk number two, let me give you three pieces. Okay, piece number one. Law piece number one would be this. Why have the law? It's basically a question. Why have the law? How does this piece, like why do I need this piece in the puzzle? Where does it fit? Because if I've been reconciled to God by faith, God made a promise, I respond to that by faith, why do I need the law? Look at verses 19 and 20. Why then the law? Well, it's added because of what? Transgressions. Until the offspring should come by whom the promise had been made and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, why was the law added? Paul says, well, very simply, it was added because of transgressions. Now, to be honest, it would be really nice if at that point added because of transgressions, he then went on and explained himself. What do you mean by that? Because the word added is a really broad word, so it's like you added it, but what does that mean? Well, most likely what it means is that what God was doing by adding the law in terms of us coming to know Jesus was he wanted to expose sin. It's as if God was saying, hey, what I want to do is I want to give people the law, and I want them to be able to say, here's what the law says your life should look like. And then you look in the mirror at your life and go, one of these things doesn't look like the other. There's real dissonance here. My life isn't what it should be. In essence, he's bringing the law in to expose us to say, we have a problem. Okay? Now, please understand this. Yes, God wants to make it abundantly clear that every single one of us has a problem. But God isn't going to just sit there and say, you've got a problem. Look at how verse 9 unfolds. Until. So God's going to say, you have a problem. But the word until tells us, you know what, there's something more. God already has built in a solution. That offspring that was made, the promise was made to, he's going to show up. And all of a sudden, the problem doesn't have to be a problem anymore. There can literally be a solution. Now, after he makes that statement, Paul makes what I would call a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail at this point. Because he starts talking about how the law was given, and he starts talking about it was given through angels, and all of a sudden you're like, well, where's that? The honest truth is, that is not found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't say the law was given through angels. You can go to one verse, it's either, it's Deuteronomy chapter 33, and I can't remember offhand if it's verse 2 or if it's verse 22, that if you twist and tweak, you might be able to get, there's a tiny little hint that angels were involved. The idea most likely of angels being involved in giving the law was a Jewish tradition. In essence, Paul's saying in his aside, um, you know what, your goofy idea should have told you that the law 
is kind of subordinate to the promise because who gave the law? Well, the law kind of went through the chain of command. Went from God to angels to Moses to you. How was the promise given? Abraham and God, that's it. God spoke right to Abraham. That should have told you, if it's passed down the chain, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not insignificant, but it's not the same thing. And he's trying to draw out the point, hey, it was given because you have a problem. But your goofy idea should have told you, time out, it's not that important. Why law? Because there's a problem. But that's not everything. It should have told you that. Second piece of the, of the puzzle Second tension point, and there's some measure of repetition, but second point is, is the law against the promise? I mean, you read the stories in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15. You read the story of what we looked at in Galatians chapter 2 with Paul and Barnabas and Peter and all of that tension. You kind of say, hey, are law and the promise against each other? Because Paul's kind of going after them and they're kind of going after Paul and they seem to be on opposite sides. Is, is that really what's here? Is the law trying one way and the promise another way? Well, look at verse 21. Paul doesn't think so. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. They're not in opposition. Why? Well, if you're going to have opposition, you, you have to have two things competing for the same result. Both trying to give life, but what does verse 21 go on to say? What does the law do? Well, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would have been by the law. But the law can't give life. Okay, Paul is saying, hey, there is a law, but it's not competing with the promise. Only one thing can give life. That's faith in the promise of God, not the law. Now, there's a little bit of what I would say, this is my rabbit trail, okay? This would be an aside I think we need to point out at this point, kind of underline something. I think we need to remember when we read these verses kind of in the background, which we need to bring to the foreground, is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, God has been declaring He wants us to have life. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and all of a sudden they went from being connected to God to being separated from God. They went from being alive to now they were going to experience death. They were dying. God doesn't want that for any of us. But here's the very real challenge for all of us. God says, I want you to have life. But we have a really hard time hearing that message, yet alone receiving it. All of us, without the Lord Jesus, are spiritually dead. Another word picture that maybe kind of works comes from our friend Martin Luther. In 1520, he was sort of in this battle of writing publications and he wrote a publication, and I can't remember now if I have the title right. It's either The Bondage of the Will or The Bondage of Man. But in that document, he talks about our spiritual condition without the Lord Jesus. And he says, and this is really flattering for all of us, we are all spiritual prostitutes. Okay, we were designed, we were created so that we would be in a relationship with God. 
But we're prostitutes. We've walked away from that. We've rejected God. And so instead of pursuing God, we pursue everything else. Well, if you're spiritually dead, if you're a spiritual prostitute, whatever term really resonates with you, both are accurate, all of a sudden we don't know how big of a problem we have. So please understand, part of why God brought the law in isn't to compete with the promise. He brought the law in. He added the law to help us see we have a problem. And part of the reason I'm drawing attention to this, making an issue here, is because where Paul's going to go next, if you look at verse 22, as he kind of continues at this point, but he said, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, by the word Scripture there in verse 22, you probably should think law. Okay, one of the ways in the Jewish context they would refer to the law, they'd call it Scripture because it is Scripture. Okay, it's a part of Scripture. And one of the things that the Bible does for us, the Bible is not ultimately about you and me, it's about God. We're connected to it, but the Bible is this revelation of the character of God. The law is a revelation of the character of God. It sort of tells us things about God, who He is. But the truth is, when that law is revealed and we look at what do the Ten Commandments say, for example, and we look at our lives and go, I fall short of that. But that's hard for us. It's a hard reality for us to really realize we fall short or, or to get it. So what does Paul say? He said, we're going to be imprisoned there. The law is going to do some things to kind of keep us imprisoned, help us realize we have a problem, but again, it's not to keep us there permanently. What does the second half of the verse say? So that the promise given by faith, this promise given to us, God imprisons us, yes, but He keeps us there so that we can come to Christ so that we recognize we have an issue, we have a problem. The law was given so you and I would see our need of the promise. Law piece number three. Okay, and again, there's some repetition, but kind of in some ways when we think of the law, we need to see the law in terms of us coming to Christ, in terms of being reconciled to God. The law is a temporary gift. Okay, this isn't meant to be a gift that is always telling me I'm a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner and I'm separated from God. Romans chapter 7, verse 12 says the law is good and righteous and, or, sorry, get my order right, it's holy, righteous, and good. The law of God, the revelation of God in the Old Testament is to us an enormous gift. We are incredibly blessed to have that, to know that, to be able to interact with that and see that. But please understand, it is not the final gift you and I need. Okay? Us knowing the law and being exposed to the character of God in a written form is not the ultimate thing we need. We need someone who can step in and help us with the fact we are imprisoned. We need somebody to rescue us, to, in that sense, deliver us. Verses 23 and 24 kind of point, I think, to that. Now, before faith came, we were held 
captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, the law, again, emphasis, repetition, the law is putting us into captivity. You could say Paul wants to kind of underline that the law kind of exposes the fact that we have a problem and that we're imprisoned in that problem. And the idea is to keep that right smack in front of us, to help us realize, I've got an issue. Now, here's another aside. Here's another, I pray it is not a rabbit trail. I pray it's an application of this. When the law is put in front of us, part of what's happening is we're probably going to be convicted of our sin. That's really what's the intent. We're being convicted of our sin. Conviction of sin is an incredible gift from God to you and me. How many of you like that, though? I don't like to be convicted, but it's an amazing gift that God puts into our lives. So God says, I'm going to imprison you. I'm going to convict you. So you realize there's a problem. And you all of a sudden realize how desperately I need that promise of God so that I can be free. But here's our challenge. Almost every person I have ever met wants to run away from conviction. If we feel convicted, we want out of it. So really quickly, this is an aside, and I pray the Holy Spirit's a part of this. But let me just throw this out to you. If you find yourself angry, especially angry at somebody, if you find yourself wanting to blame somebody for something, if you find yourself trying to rationalize things that you've done, you might want to just take a moment and say, time out here. And if it helps you, literally get down on your knees, fold your hands, bow your head, and say, God, are you trying to convict me here? is the reason I'm ticked off at that person. Not really that person, but because you're trying to convict me and I'm trying to get off the hook. I'm trying to wiggle away and blame it on somebody else. We want to avoid conviction, and I think Paul is telling us we desperately need conviction in our lives to realize how desperately we need Jesus Christ. I say that as one who really wants to run from conviction. Back from the aside. Verses 23 and 24, really, verse 23 says you're in prison. When you're in prison, you want out of there. So what does God do? He says, well, the, the law is kind of like a guardian. The law is kind of like a supervisor who's going to keep us where we need to be in terms of conviction until Christ comes until we really kind of get a hold. There really is a good news. There really is a gospel here to help me that the only way I'm going to get out of my situation is by faith. And Paul says, hey, God's held you in captivity. He's put you in, in a sense. He's put you in prison. He's held you into a guardian till Christ comes. But the amazing news of verse 25 is what? But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Instead of living life feeling, I am wretched, I am all these things, I trust Christ and I am free. I am released. I am reconciled to God. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, okay, that opening quote was really accurate. So what I want to try to do, and I... 
I'm aware of what time it is, I want to very quickly say, I think there are two differences that Paul's really trying to get us to see that can be true in our lives because of this promise and our trust in this promise when we realize the law was a gift of God to help us see our need, differences God wants to make in our lives, okay? So really quickly, what are those differences? What are the differences God wants to make? Difference number one is faith makes you a full heir of God, okay? Faith in Christ makes you a full heir of God. Read with me verse 26, verse 27, verse 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Verse 26 is a verse that God has used in my life in these very, very powerful ways. I do not deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve anything that God has given. And yet, because of faith in Christ, that He made it so that moved me to where I realized I have no other option. I have no other solution. He brings me to faith in Christ. Then He says, you're a son of God. Now, please, when you hear son of God here, do not think, well, they're talking about a male child. You're not talking about a male child. Okay, we'll get into this more next week because Paul's going to go more. But when the word son is used, it's really talking about you are a full heir of God. You have an inheritance with the Father. You have a full share with Him. You belong to His family. Now, we could go on a whole lot there, but verse 27 kind of says, well, obviously that's true. Because when you trusted Christ, using sort of the word picture of, of baptism, of the ordinance of baptism, when you publicly proclaim that you trusted Christ, you're, you're putting on Christ. And then the word put on is you're putting on the clothes of Jesus. You're dressing like you belong to the family because you do belong to the family. You've got the family uniform on, so to speak. And if that's true, then verse 29 says, hey, if you belong to Christ... You also belong to Abraham. All those promises, all of that, that's yours. Now this may sound sacrilegious, but it is not meant to be sacrilegious. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus, then you have all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ. Part of what that means, part of why Paul's taking us through this faith and law thing, why he wants to just make it so clear that we understand faith is what we need. It's not by law that I get connected. The law is a tool. That's it. Why he makes all these geeky, nerdy things trying to draw this out is he wants you and I to be as close to God as Jesus is to God. Do you realize that? As close as Jesus is to the Father is what He desires for you and me. So two questions. First, have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Realizing God wants you to be with Him. 
Question two, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus, are you leaning into that? Are you leaning into the closeness of God? Or are you letting things get in the way? Are you giving yourself to other things? Because when the Bible uses that phrase, Abba, Abba, Father, in, Revel, or in Romans chapter 8, it means that. It means you can call him Daddy. You can climb up literally on his lap. And that is the safest and best place for you to be. And that's what he desires for you. So are you leaning into that? Or are you playing a game? That's difference number one. You are a full heir, but that means you are with him. Not intellectually, intimately. Difference number two. What's the second difference to wrap this up? He gives us an identity that gives life. Okay, he gives us an identity that is life-giving. Verse 28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul's kind of grouping together sort of three different ways. How do we identify ourselves? Well, usually we identify ourselves with there's some social things, okay? You, you identify yourself by, by race. You identify yourself by your social rank. You identify yourself by your sex or your gender. There's, there's folks that spend a lot of time, uh, scholars, studying how people uh, form their identity. And a lot of us right now, the, the common way to form your identity right now is by all the things that make you unique or distinct from other people. Okay, you can do that, but what happens when you do that? All of a sudden then, if I started doing that compared to all of you, I would be separating myself from you and I would end up a long ways away and I'd be all alone. What does the gospel do? What does trust in Christ alone do? It says we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, please understand this. We, Paul is not saying you erase every distinction between people, okay? I can't change the color of my skin, okay? I, you, that's going to be a part of life, but what Paul's saying in this verse is our primary identity or the starting point of our identity is that as followers of Christ, we are together in Christ Jesus. Say, why is that so important? What do you mean it's life-giving? Well, I want you to realize this. If you're connected to the Lord Jesus and you're a part of God's family, you're connected to the Father who is the source of life. You are connected to the Son who is the giver of life. You are connected to the Spirit who is the empowerer of life. God is offering you life. When you trust in Christ alone, what do you get? All of a sudden, it doesn't matter who you were, who you were, what you were, any of that. What matters is now you belong to the family of God, and He gives life in that. And all of a sudden, we have identity and life together. Here's the deal, folks. God is inviting you today and for the rest of your life to be close to Him and to find your identity not in some oddity of you or some oddity that people project onto you, 
but to find your identity in Christ and to know literally the life of God flowing in your life. I pray today that you and I will not miss out on what God is literally offering us. He's putting it right smack in front of us and he says, I gave the law so you'd see you desperately need this and I had promised all the way from the beginning that if you would trust in God and his promise, which we translate in since Jesus came, we would trust in God and the promised one who is his son. We would have all that God entails. Please, do not miss what God is offering. Let's pray.